the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Uh, how did uh, Shakespeare put it? Uh, so shines a good deed on a cloudy day. Many of you may know that from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But I say that because welcome back to Third Hour Tuesdays with Hugh Hallman. Hugh Hallman, welcome back to the studio. We have missed you so much. Sight for sore eyes. Glad to have you back, sir. I have missed doing this, being with you, uh, getting a chance to speak with your listeners, and uh, I hope maybe some of my experience over the last nearly three weeks will be useful. Well, tell us what you've been up to. You were uh, you were abroad in Kazakhstan, no doubt. Well, I was still a man, but yes, I was in Kazakhstan. <laughs> okay. Uh, a little uh, innocence abroad uh, is on my mind. An old Mark Twain uh, diary. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, so I was in Kazakhstan yet again uh, and in Turkey for a very short bit of time uh, trying to figure out how we're doing there. And Kazakhstan remains an important ally for the United States, in my view. Uh, and to contrast other of our allies. So India uh, is now the largest by population country on the planet, uh, eclipsing uh, this last year and a half uh, China. Uh, as the Chinese are having a birth rate problem and their uh, demographics are collapsing and more quickly than originally thought. In this instance, uh, our good friends in India have decided that it's not important to uh, honor the sanctions that the U.S. and other Western allies have sought to put in place against Russia for the terrible things it's doing in, in Ukraine. And instead, Kazakhstan, uh, its president, who is in New York City uh, this week because the U.N. General Assembly meetings are taking place, um, traveled to Moscow about two months ago now and met directly with Vladimir Putin and said, uh, Dear Vlad, we are going to be honoring the sanctions. Now, this is a country that shares the longest land border between nations, between Russia and Kazakhstan, 4,500 miles thereabouts. Uh, with the ability for tanks to roll across it fairly easily. In fact, uh, I was a little afraid in January when Russia uh, put 2,000 troops into Kazakhstan as part of a move by the uh, Collective Security Treaty Organization, the sort of that area's equivalent of NATO. And Kazakhstan is still part of that with Russia, Azerbaijan, and some others. And Kazakhstan was having uh, some problems because of our screwed-up mess in Afghanistan uh, one of the issues Kazakhstan was facing, is, uh, as was uh, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, was that terrorists that had been pinned down in Afghanistan due to our continuing uh, keeping the fight there, I call it the paper, the flypaper strategy. I disagreed with Donald Trump, and I certainly disagreed with Joe Biden on taking our troops out of Afghanistan and ultimately what happened. And we talked about that beforehand. And ultimately, uh, what happened is that the terrorists that had been kept busy in Afghanistan started making their way out of Afghanistan and making their way into other countries, trying to get back to Europe and the United States, where they had previously been blowing things up. We didn't uh, seem to remember those lessons um, when uh, bits of Europe were being blown up and London bombs, that sort of stuff. Uh, and so now these terrorists start making their way into the neighboring countries, 
Kazakhstan included, and the U.S. supplied some resources to those countries to secure their borders. That's counter-narrative, so the U.S. was not publishing the fact that it was doing that, but it was uh, in uh, October, November, December. And some of those terrorists made their way into Kazakhstan. That was problem one. Problem two is the old guard was tired of the reforms that the new president was putting in place to continue the the slow march towards liberty and freedom. And uh, a coup attempt was uh, 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 tried in early January. Uh, and that was a problem. And then you did have actually peaceful protests in Kazakhstan because food prices and, and gasoline prices and gas prices went up unexpectedly quickly, in part because Kazakhstan was asked to and did deliver 50,000 metric tons of food to Afghanistan to stop the starvation that was going on. So that's that sets the table. And uh, here we had some minor problems in Kazakhstan. Well, minor compared to world news, like uh, Russians rolling tanks into Ukraine. But ultimately, 227 people lost their lives in, in Kazakhstan during some pretty outrageous turmoil. But unlike what was reported in the press, it was all peaceful protesters who lost their lives being shot at by uh, by troops from Kazakhstan. The reverse is really what happened. That is, armed thugs who were trying to take over the country and started blowing up infrastructure and resources uh, were actually shot by some military. But so were some police officers and other military. So they were among the 227 dead. Uh, but the Western press reported it as peaceful protesters were murdered. Um, not really quite what was going on, and not an apologist by any stretch. But I do remind folks that Kazakhstan has now just hit its 30th birthday for independence from the Soviet Union. And I say, so think about where the U.S. was when it was 30 years old. Ten percent of the population, white males could vote, women couldn't, and we had slaves. Um, so Kazakhstan's made a pretty good stab at liberty and freedom compared to other uh, nascent uh, forming democracies. That ally sent its president to, Kaz- uh, to Russia, and uh, President Takayev stuck his finger in uh, Vlad's uh, lapel and explained that Kazakhstan was not going to violate the sanctions, that it would uphold them uh, in honor of what the U.S. was trying to do. It refused to recognize the two breakaway regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, and uh, unlike other places in the world, including China, uh, and uh, has been holding that line ever since. That's a pretty good ally uh, to have right on the border of Russia, and we have not, uh, I think, honored that relationship nearly as well as we should. So I'm hoping that uh, the Biden administration will start understanding the key virtues of Kazakhstan and its relationship. Certainly, the state of Arizona has now had a 29-year relationship with Kazakhstan. Most Arizonans don't know that, that uh, Arizona drew the stick uh, out of the basket uh, with the State Department 30 years ago that said that they would, the Arizona would partner with Kazakhstan as one of the countries coming out of the Soviet quagmire. And we started that relationship with our National Guard. So our National Guard actually helps train Kazakhstan's military forces, helps them with border security and understanding how to do that, and professionalize the organization. That's a pretty impressive little thing for the state of Arizona to be doing with a country that is the ninth largest geographically on the planet. Most people have no idea it's that large. It is half the size of the continental United States. Um, and larger than most. It has more oil wealth and mineral wealth uh, than any place on the planet outside of the Middle East, uh, largest oil field, and it has been working diligently to supply the Western allies in Europe with oil and gas to overcome the shortages caused by the problems with Russia. 
That's a pretty impressive ally, that they are working diligently, notwithstanding the threat from the bear to the north and the uh, dragon immediately to the east. So Kazakhstan shares a border with China and shares a border with Russia. That ain't a great neighborhood to live in. And they are doing a pretty good job. So that's what I was doing in Kazakhstan, uh, working for about uh, two and a half weeks to try to continue to expand their educational opportunities uh, between universities in Kazakhstan and universities in the U.S., um, so that they would continue to build their curriculum and teach liberal concepts. And what I mean that by that is classical liberal concepts, what it means to be free, what it means to be liberal. And I, and I taught a course, in fact, on U.S. constitutional law uh, to international relations students and used that as an object lesson because learning the U.S. Constitution isn't quite as important to Kazakhs or Kazakhstanis as, uh, as learning the Kazakhstani Constitution. But it was really to ask the kinds of questions. Don't model your constitution after the United States Constitution necessarily, as the Soviet Union did. Um, people reading the Soviet Constitution would have thought they were reading the U.S. Constitution. It had that kind of verbiage in it. Uh, but model it on the same questions that our founders asked. We have a bicameral uh, legislature for a very specific reason. We have a House that has a two-year uh, term for its House members with direct election originally, for a very important reason for the United States, where the Senate was elected through legislatures uh, and has a six-year term with a rotating uh, every uh, two years, a third of the body is elected. Those were solutions to real problems our founders thought about really hard and argued about. And my hope is that uh, building democracies recognize, as I ask the question often, can you please name the first president of the United States? And inevitably, every American will tell you it was George Washington, as will almost every Kazakhstani. Of course, that's not true. The first president of the United States was John Hansen. Mm -hmm. George Washington was the ninth president of the United States. Hansen, of course, was the first president under the Articles of Confederation. But our narrative tells the rest of the world we got it right, right out of the box. And what I think we ought to be doing is explaining that the Articles of Confederation didn't work very well, that our founding was in 1776. We celebrate that as our founding, but it wasn't till 12 years later that we crafted a document that we could then use to, to run this country. And so George Washington is the first president under the new Constitution, uh, but it took us uh, eight other people before that trying to run a federal government, not very successfully. And that if we let that message be known, people will understand, just keep trying. It takes effort. It takes work. And the first time may not be the perfect solution. And indeed, it wasn't for the United States. Uh, and George Washington was not our first president. Uh, Hugh Holman, thank you. And I didn't give you the proper introduction. Um, let me do it as we head into break. Hugh Holman is, of course, the former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney and, as you can see, also a teacher extraordinaire, a builder of schools and a builder of students, amongst whom I count myself. I'm Seth. He's Hugh. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y-Refi. These are great people, and they do a great thing. They do well by doing good for others. You can be a part of that, too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm that does what? What is it they're offering? They're offering a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure collateralized portfolio. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 
3087. You can meet with them. They're a locally based company. You won't get a sales pitch. They'll just tell you what they do and let it speak for itself. Hugh Hallman is uh, is our guest in studio, uh, restoring normalcy here. We uh, missed you over the last several weeks while you were brought. You said something interesting. Uh, many things. For once. Inter- yes, no, no, yes. no, no. Many things. And I was I, w- I was thinking about the threads I wanted to take from what you were saying. Let me start here. This has been a kick of mine because we're just coming off the the pregnant date of September 17th. It's a date that I know means something to you. We used to call it, still I guess do call it, Constitution Day. Uh, it's the day we celebrate uh, the ratification of our Constitution, September 17th, and today being September 20th. You were teaching constitutional law abroad in Kazakhstan. Uh, Kazakhstan, is that the best way to yeah. – and um, my question to you is this, Hugh. As a teacher here, as a builder of schools here, as a teacher there, as a builder of schools there – I really, really, really worry about the degraded state of knowledge here. Is there more of a thirst and interest to understand it abroad in Kazakhstan, places like Kazakhstan, than you perceive here? Is there more appreciation for what we did here, there, than there is here? Um, how do you how do you associate or how do you assimilate the two different kinds of students you see, the American student vis-a-vis our U.S. Constitution and a student, say, in an allied country like Kazakhstan and understanding and appreciating our Constitution, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes complete sense. And one of the reasons I was attracted to Kazakhstan has to do with our founding and the early early leaders of our country. When I first arrived in Kazakhstan in 1993, February 6, 1993, and met with families and talked with people, there were two things I saw in Kazakhstani homes. One was a tree, a family tree, and literally the Kazakhstanis can identify three tribes or Jews, hordes, that's actually the word they use, the three main hordes that gave rise to the population of what is now modern Kazakhstan. And that tree showed you where you come from and who your family members are, and it branches out to the finest leaves, and everybody knows how they fit together in that society. Fascinating cultural kind of piece. But the second thing was pictures of Abraham Lincoln and that they have and still had and still have an appreciation for our 16th president of the United States and what he stood for and meant to everybody around the world for someone who would push for freedom and liberty for all people within his society. That's a meaningful thing. And that. You don't see pictures of Abraham Lincoln in homes in the United States. I don't know if you see him in schools anymore. You used to, right? Remember, we all grew up with Washington and Lincoln. I don't. That's think you correct. See it and anymore. the flag, right? And the flag, right? And there was an understanding of that. And we, of course, celebrated Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday, That's and they're they're now merged together to President's Day. So we can include, yeah, whatever else you want to. Yeah. Uh, and the loss of that meaning, I think, is palpable in our current environment, where. People very easily will talk about the virtues of socialism and that that's somehow independent of the totalitarian uh, results that one gets from that, that the lack of education about the founding and the arguments I talked about in the last segment, that our founders were arguing about why to create the Constitution the way it's created and the tinkering with it that's done so easily that misunderstands why this structure was created in the first instance to maximize liberty, 
while at the same time controlling the outcome of the society, not in the way that the liberals want to, the left now wants to, but to make sure that the structure would survive uh, uh, strains. And so it is not the flexible structure that the leftists on the court want to make it, that it is a living, breathing constitution that, that can be easily changed to fit current modern times. But it was a structure that allowed individual states to be experimenting and be the, the uh, petri dishes of experimentation to give rise to different concepts and policies. And we see that failure to understand those notions in today's discussion about the abortion debate. The abortion debate by the left gets uh, stated as it's terrible. The Supreme Court outlawed uh, abortion, and now you can't get it in any state when, in fact, all the Supreme Court did was say that this is a conversation that is properly had at the state level. Oh, no, we don't want to do that. It's Well, in fact, that's exactly what the founders envisioned. And now, honestly... This state and every other state has a lot of work to do in arguing over what is the balance that we want to achieve. And the first ones out of the gate in every state have gotten it wrong. I can guarantee you that. And that as others engage in this discussion and debate, the push and pull of politics will get us to, my guess is, some fairly stable, slightly different but probably generally similar across the country. But it's going to take us 10 or 15 years to get there, um, where our society finally figures out what most people want to live under and how they want to live. It is absolutely false what the liberals say in Congress, the left says in Congress, that 85% of the population believes in the way California is handling it or Nancy Pelosi wants to handle it. It's nonsense. What most people are is stuck in the middle, not wanting to see abortion be a solution that is easily managed, but recognizing there are some challenges that uh, our society presents that abortion becomes an option for many people. I'm not going to sit here in judgment. That's God's job. Uh, and I do want to sit in judgment of those people who refuse to have the conversation on both sides, because it's going to take that conversation to give rise to solutions that make sense here. And if we do it right, we'll reduce the number of people who are getting pregnant in the first place. And we failed in that front as well. You make a really good point about the states, the every state that tried that 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 enters into this territory is going to get it wrong at first. Almost every state will likely their first step will likely not be their ultimate step. It's going to be driven step. by one side or the other. And we have experience with this in almost every other area. And listen, as as you're talking, I was thinking, you know, when it came to welfare reform, which was popular in the 90s, um, it was a state that kind of taught the rest of us what to do. It was Wisconsin. It was Tommy Thompson. I think I have that right. Tommy Thompson in, in Wisconsin. And we used that as the model going forward. We've done this. We've done this on any number of things with crime. Uh, just a little bit before that, it was New York City. Uh, and uh, uh, the Kelling, uh, the tel Kelling James Q. Wilson model implemented by Giuliani and Bratton that kind of taught the rest of the country and the rest of the major cities how to do it on almost every serious issue that does actually really belong to the purview of the states, as you were saying, Hugh. Uh, it's usually done through the experiment that Louis Brandeis gave voice to. And usually, if we're open minded enough to look at what works and replicate that, that's how we that's how we end up with usually finding something like a national solution. 
Um, it will be the same with abortion. And it's very likely, it's very likely Mississippi may have gotten it right. The polling shows that once people understand that 15-week line, that's where the majority of Americans tend to kind of end up. We can pick up on this on the other side if you want, or we Please. can chase down another another few things which I have. Uh, I couldn't wait to get uh, get to you on. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, uh, Little Bellamy Brothers. For those of you listening on podcast, as my friend Hugh Hallman likes to remind me, it's good to sometimes mention the music we're coming back with because we don't do the music on the podcast. Hugh Hallman is our guest. We were just talking about the idea that uh, states uh, being uh, experimenters and laboratories of public policy solutions, we were talking about it in the abortion realm. It kind of brings on an interesting, uh, an interesting new 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 light when we're talking about immigration, uh, Hugh. Uh, the states have been experimenting a little bit lately on that, haven't they? Florida has been experimenting with Massachusetts, one might say. Texas has been uh, experimenting with the Naval Observatory, one might say. Uh, it's 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 shined a light, shined a light. It's uh, illuminated a lot of interesting, uh, shall we say, hypocrisies. Let me say this, and then I'd love your reaction uh, and thought. If nothing else, if nothing else, the notion that our border is secure, which is the notion that is perpetrated by the president, the vice president, the secretary of Homeland Security and the Speaker of the House, takes on uh, a general gloss of uh, a general gloss of veracity because they say it and the media is inclined to support their point of view anyway. What Abbott and DeSantis did was make a news story of it and say, you can no longer tell us the border is secure when you are now complaining about, in fact, as Martha's Vineyard Chamber of Commerce said, a humanitarian crisis over 50 people being sent there. This whole thing, Hugh, you were watching it, some of it abroad, some since you've come back. Your thoughts? It is that hypocrisy that the light is getting shined on. And as the corporate media continues to try to beat up uh, the governors of Texas and Florida, although our own governor has gotten a little bit of press on it. Um, that it's some, yeah, that's we'll that come back to that. Somehow too, right? they're engaging in in uh, press stunts. What's fascinating to me is the very diligent effort that that corporate media is making, trying to cast every statement as uh, evil, demonstrating that uh, Abbott and DeSantis in particular are evil people for manipulating human beings and playing politics with their lives. And yet they don't happen to remember that it was this president of the United States who invited millions of people from Central and South America to start making their way to the United States because the borders are open, creating a true humanitarian crisis beyond belief purely for politics and creating a border crisis that ultimately played out badly for him because it did demonstrate for the period of time that the press was willing to cover it, that there was a huge welling of people along our southern border. The only time they got themselves out of their way on the bad press for that was when we had some uh, horse riders who were accused of whipping people who were coming across the Rio Grande River, most of which didn't happen. And they had to create a news story to make it look 
like the the folks in Texas and the hard right were the ones who were creating the real problem here. Cowboys, uh, cowboys yeah. who were innocently uh, or who were evilly whipping innocent people, none of which at the end of the day actually took place. But that was ultimately the end of that cycle and that story. And so we stopped hearing about the fact that there are tens of thousands of people still streaming across our border in an uncontrolled way and that DeSantis and Abbott have shown the light, shined the light on that, which is we're going inflamed. With we're going with illuminated. Illuminated, inflamed <laughs> the, the conversation. Brightened, yeah. Uh, and the, truly, to have the left decrying that they are playing politics with human beings when that is all that has been going on with our border crisis for 30 years. The left has been using the border to allow people to come in that they then can try to recruit into their army of folks uh, who will become good Democrat voters because they're going to offer them citizenship and dreamer uh, sort of solutions and all kinds of other things that uh, have not always played out well for the left, but certainly have added to their uh, credibility with a whole host of people who are in more difficult circumstances in the United States. Now, interestingly, in 2016, that flipped around because it was those very people, the folks in blue-collar jobs, who got tired of being used by the left as the sure vote uh, by being given handouts and instead sought to have fairness in the job opportunities and in how we're handling immigration. Tough problem. Uh, and uh, that the the t- governors of Texas and Florida are shining some light on the fact that the folks up north want to provide sanctuary cities for people who aren't there uh, now have humanitarian crises on their hands when they have to deal with 50 immigrants as opposed to the tens of thousands coming across their borders. They're sanctuary cities up until the point the illegal immigrants show up. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then Let, it's a humanitarian crisis. I want to pick up on that. And, oh, my gosh, so much more. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people at Balance of Nature. Good people uh, because they make a great product, also because they uh, work very charitably to help teach uh, American children and families about American history, a project we've talked about before. But it's their product that I think is the best product I have ever taken, their fruits and veggies, a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables in just one daily dose. You take it once a day, and you are boosting your health, your energy, and your immunity. 100% pure, no additives, no added sugars, sweeteners, colors, or anything. Just pure, potent plant power. And you won't need weeks to know if it's working. You probably won't even need days. You are surging fruits and veggies into your body with one daily dose. Check them out at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Hugh Hallman is my guest, and we're covering... A lot of territory uh, because he was gone. You can't leave us for this many weeks. Again, Hugh, too many bad things happen when you're gone. I'll give you another one. I'd love your thoughts on it. You, like me, is it fair to say, are kind of creatures of the university, or at least uh, have been, uh, and are steeped, you more so than me, in uh, elementary and secondary education. Uh, Joe Biden, with the stroke of a pen, decided to bail out people with college and student loans they um, they could no longer or claim they could no longer afford up to 10,000 in some cases up to $20,000 uh, I'd love your thoughts on that and uh, I want to reserve the right for a follow-up question if I might I'll do my best to be short then <laughs> uh, although I tend to be long-winded no that's all right um, 
the bailout did two things. First, uh, it exacerbated inflation. Why is that? Because effectively you just sunk a bunch more uh, cash into the economy to make purchases because those people who were otherwise paying their student loans were relieved of that burden. And now that money, instead of going back to pay down the debt of the United States, went back into uh, typical purchases. Uh, gee whiz, uh, so somebody paid their mortgage, somebody paid their rent, et cetera, instead. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a large sledgehammer approach to a very uh, discrete problem. Were there people who could not any longer afford their student loans? Sure there were. And there were programs that allowed them to avoid paying it. But with that stroke of the pen, wiping out billions of dollars, more or less, of debt, um, for people who may or may not have needed that assistance, put that much more money back into the economy uh, and uh, chased inflation a little bit more. Uh, this is a guy who understood inflation to be transitory a year ago, and now his uh, uh, secretary of, uh, uh, of the Treasury is trying to backpedal over the fact that they've missed it so badly. Um, in addition, what it did was to exacerbate the problem of college tuition spiking. Uh, what do you, how do you want to increase tuition best? Let's see. Let's have the federal government start supplying big piles of loans to people who may or may not be able to pay them back, who may or may not choose degrees that make any sense to justify having spent the money, uh, pick pick the degree that's not going to get you a job and pursue that, spending lots and lots of money in higher education. And by having that much more money chasing education slots, what does it do? Well, gee, let's look at our supply and demand model. If you have somebody waving even more money, what does the seller of those services do? Increase prices. That's exactly what every university in this country does and has been doing for decades. As the federal government has thrown more and more money at higher education as if it's the only solution for anybody uh, pursuing a life, false, 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 um, all it has done is drive up the cost of a college education because we've thrown billions and hundreds of billions of dollars at universities and we should not be shocked that they've then all increased their tuition costs so that students have to take loans to pay those bills. And the universities then have churned that money into greater and greater engines of expansion without improving education. We have that proof that students coming out of U.S. universities and colleges are doing less well in their subjects than students abroad is no surprise in the same way that we've thrown even more money at primary and secondary education and gotten worse results. Your monologue talks about the fact, uh, so folks, you really need to go back and listen to it if you missed that in the first hour, talks about the fact that the longer you're in school, it appears the worse you do in math as just one indicator. Those who are in school longest under our public education system are doing worse at the end of the day. Uh, so a greater proportion of the student body is failing in mathematics than in third grade or fifth grade or eighth grade or freshman year uh, in high school. That's a crazy statistic. Now, there are lots of explanations for it, but I think it goes uh, it makes an important point um, that throwing more and more money at these things only exacerbates the results we're getting in our education and increases the price for it. Hugh, uh, so much in that. Um, let me ask you this. The 
colleges and universities across the country have a combined endowment that's approaching a trillion dollars. Do you think it's um, worth considering tapping into that or that they should these colleges and universities should be held accountable for failing products? Absolutely, the failing product piece. In fact, it's interesting. The only uh, universities, colleges and universities that have been held accountable for failing product are private. Yeah. That state universities have not been held accountable for doing exactly the same thing. Uh, And so, uh, again, the the federal government is choosing its targets because we do not like private education uh, in contrast to public education because clearly uh, those people who teach in public institutions are higher quality and better human beings and we should honor them. Uh, more directly, as, as we do the same thing with public health officials. Uh, doctors and nurses who work for uh, public agencies are much more highly regarded than those that work for private agencies. Um, and I can give a private story off the air uh, on that specific thing. So uh, I don't think we should be shocked that we're getting worse results in education across the board given the process of adding more and more money. And ultimately, what Joe Biden did was forgive huge amounts of debt for people who probably shouldn't have taken it in the first place, for degrees they should never have gotten. And now they're complaining that they can't get a good job with uh, an arts major minoring in uh, basket weaving. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and and it also you you touched on it, and maybe it's a discussion for another visit. But uh, as we're going to break here, but uh, I'd like to have a conversation with you too about whether we still believe in the importance of going to college for every student. This college readiness obsession. I wonder if we might pick up on that someday too. I got to take a quick break. I'm sorry. I'm Seth. He's Hugh. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. And Hugh Hallman, as always, a delight and privilege. Uh, Absence made the heart grow fonder. I'm glad you're back, though. Um, Finish up on that last point. I hate to to let you go when we're on education, um, you being the consummate educator. The college and career readiness part that I was just mentioning in the last segment, have we made too much of a fetish of it? We've made too much of a fetish of college readiness. And we've driven more and more students to go to college when many students' desires in their life is to do something different. And what I most admired about the founding and the model for what was Tempe Preparatory Academies and ultimately now Great Hearts has uh, expanded from that was that it was a preparatory school but not a college preparatory school. Oh, nice. Its entire vision was to prepare students for life, whether they chose college or a different path for themselves. And the point of that educational model was that we needed to do a better job in our uh, middle school and high schools so that students graduating from that process had enough at their fingertips, sufficient tools, and uh, work in developing their minds that they could then ask the right questions of life no matter what direction they chose to go and be able to find the answers to those questions and proceed to do things that would make them uh, better and richer human beings. And I don't mean that necessarily monetarily, although it certainly could result. And meeting those students uh, now a decade since I have been headmaster at uh, those schools, uh, the proof is in the pudding that these are people who were so well-educated coming out of high school 
that they could take on lots of problems, including doing extraordinarily well in college, but they could also do extraordinarily well in other pursuits. And that's what high school should be doing. And our obsession over everybody going to college has led to uh, exactly the problem that Joe Biden pretends exists, that we've got a whole bunch of people educated in fields that are not particularly valuable, even to them. Next time you build a school, uh, maybe this would be a nice line over the top of it uh, from Henry David Thoreau. It's not good enough for a man to be good. He must be good at something. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman. Until tomorrow, God bless you all, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.